Good morning, everyone. So I wanted to update you. Last week, we uh, took some time to pray for Stan and Amanda and their son, Banner, as they went to Houston to get some advice on some issues um, they were having with his cystic fibrosis. And uh, I think they will tell you they received the best possible news they could have. Um, His lung functioning was showing up at about 30%, which is significantly bad. But they learned that the issue was actually not with his lungs, that there was something going on in his larynx that was giving them a false reading and that his lungs were actually in really good shape considering, and they had therapy that they can do on the larynx to help improve that function test. So they walked away with a big sigh of relief. So thank you very much for your prayers, and I certainly wanted you to know how the Lord um, walked with them through that. So thank you for praying. Last week we talked about how uh, the classroom, the desert has become a classroom, and David is a student being taught by God. We talked about how he is learning obedience through his suffering, and his character is being shaped in the midst of his distress. David is learning to trust in the Lord as the one who delivers him from all his distress. In fact, that's how he ends chapter 26. He says, so may my life be highly valued in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me from all my distress. See, David is beginning to understand that God's deliverance comes from his presence. Not that he takes him out of the distress, but he's right there with him in the midst of it. That's why David penned the words in Psalm 23, God has prepared a table In the presence of my enemies. He's learning to trust the Lord in the midst of the difficult moments of life. That's how we ended last week. But there's actually a very important event that we skipped past in in chapter 25. It actually takes place between the cave and the camp. uh, The two events that we looked at last week. And in this chapter we're going to find that the tables are turned. The man who has been hunted for many years of his life now becomes the hunter. The one who has avoided the spear now pulls out his sword. I believe what David encounters in the the desert is actually a test from God, a sort of pop quiz, if you will, in the classroom of the desert. See, God wants to know just how much David has learned, how much he's taken to heart. But the stakes are really high on this test because this test is not graded with a red pen. David's mistakes will be marked in blood because lives are at stake. And how David responds will impact those lives. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, as we come to your word, we want to do so with humble hearts. We want to be teachable. We want to grow in our understanding and be in awe of your goodness, your grace, your mercies that you promise are new every morning. Help us to see you in a new and significant way of such significance that it shapes our heart to become more like yours, shapes our lives to represent who you are in the world around us. Would you use your word this morning? to draw us closer to you. We pray this in your name. 
Amen. So if you would, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 25. Uh, I want us to kind of look at what we skipped over last week, but to be able to do that, we, we need to make sure we're all on the same page. Last week, we kind of witnessed a progression in the development of David's character. You remember in those events that took place in the cave, David initially acted on impulse. His men told him, look, this is the moment God has promised. He's given your enemy into your hands. And impulsively, David goes and cuts the corner of Saul's robe. In doing so, he was signifying through the cutting of the robe a sign of rebellion. So David stops to think about what he just did and realizes in that moment it was wrong. Because to rebel against the Lord's anointed is the very same thing as rebelling against the Lord himself. And so David wouldn't let that happen. Well, the next time we see David in action, he shows up in the camp in really an identical situation. He's standing over Saul with Saul's spear right next to his head, and Saul is sound asleep. But in this situation, David gives absolutely no thought to taking Saul's life. In fact, when Abishai, the uh, man who was with him, offered to take Saul's life for him, let me do the honors, David said, may it never be. And he goes on to explain, I don't know how divine providence will work out for Saul. I don't know if he'll die of old age. I don't know if the Lord will strike him down. I don't know if he'll die in battle. I don't know how God's providence will work in Saul's life, but I do know. What God requires of me to be faithfully obedient in this moment. And that's what we will do. So David is growing and and learning as he is progressing in his understanding of how God works. But now we're going to look at a scene sandwiched in between those two events in the southern hills of Judah. So as we look at that together, turn to chapter 25 and read with me beginning in verse 1. Then Samuel died, and all of Israel gathered together and mourned for him and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now there was a man in Moan, or Maon, whose business was in Carmel. And the man was, the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings. He was a Calebite. It was then that, that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So I'm going to pause there because we've got a lot of information here setting up the, the scene of this encounter. We learn a lot about some new people in some new places. We learn that Samuel's died. And when Samuel has died, this is an end of an era in the lives of the Israelite people. And so everyone gathers to mourn his death. I believe including David and his men. It's as if everything was put on pause for this brief moment in Israel's history that was of such significance. And then once he was buried, everything kind of went back to normal. David goes back to hiding in the wilderness where he's learning to trust in the Lord. 
But it's important to understand that David and his men are not just sitting around twiddling their thumbs. They've become a really significant community of people. Those 300 malcontent men have now grown to become 600 mighty men of valor. They've fought battles together. They've been to war with one another. And now they've formed a tight-knit community with wives and families, even livestock. And they're not alone as they hide out in the wilderness. The text tells us that there's a man named Nabal. And we learn from the description that Nabal, as it says in in verse 2, is very rich. And it kind of supports that by describing some of his property. He has 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. We learn that Nabal lives in Maon, but he does work in Carmel. We also learn that Nabal is a Calebite. Now that's really significant because that means he's a relative of David's. They're from the tribe of Judah. They're kinsmen. But this is kind of one of those relatives that you really don't want to claim. This guy is nasty and mean. He's not just a shrewd businessman. He's a rude businessman. He's stubborn. He's obstinate. He's unkind. He's ungrateful. He's one of those relatives that you don't want to claim. But his wife, on the other hand, is just the opposite. She's intelligent. She's beautiful. She's gracious. She's kind. If truth be known, I bet Abigail is the real reason for Nabal's success. As we'll see, she's a remarkable woman. Verse 4 tells us that it's money-making time for Nabal. Those sheep are sheared twice a year, and that's where the owners make their money. And with 3,000 sheep, that's a lot of money. Okay? So let's continue in verse 5. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Have a long life, peace be to you, and peace be to your house, peace be to all that you have. And now I have heard that you have shears, and now your shepherds have been with us, and we have, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything at all the days that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at your hand to your servants and to your son, David. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. Then they waited. It's important to understand that what David is doing here is very reasonable. He's making a reasonable request because he and his men have been located in that same area that Nabal and his shepherds have been tending their sheep. And it's the wilderness. So there are no fences to describe where property lines might be, which also means there's really no protection. You're very vulnerable when you're out there in the wilderness. So David and his men have been like a free security service for Nabal and his shepherds they've not taken advantage of the workforce in fact it's just the opposite they've been key to his success 
They've lost nothing under David's protection from he and his men. So, as Nabal collects his prophets and throws a big feast to celebrate, David humbly asks if Nabal would be willing to share some with he and his men. It's reasonable. Nabal has been receiving free labor for at least six months. And so a little handout wouldn't be wrong. In fact, it would be the right thing to do. Look at how he responds in verse 9. Verse 10. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who's David? And who's the son of Jesse? Are there not... There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? So David's young men retraced their way and went back. And they came and told according to all these words. Well, to put it bluntly, Nabal is an idiot. He's a fool. He he not only rejected David's request, but he returned the request as an insult. I personally am convinced that Nabal knew very well who David was and that he was one of his kingsmen from the tribe of Judah. But instead, what he says is, oh, who's David? Son of Jesse? Oh, he's just another runaway slave. That's who he is. And his men? A bunch of nobodies looking for a handout. That's who they are. I'm not going to give those guys my bread, my water, my meat. So here's the test. How will David respond? Will he trust in the Lord? Or will he take matters into his own hands? Because remember, this is happening right on the heels of the event in the cave when David first reacts on impulse. Will it happen again? Or did he learn something in the cave? Well, let's find out. Verse 13. And David said to his men, Each of you gird on his sword. So each man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed with the baggage. <laughs> well, let's just say that David still has a lot to learn. Because his immediate reaction was vengeance. Runaway slave? A bunch of nobodies? Are you kidding me? After all we've done for you, I'll show you, runaway slave. Men, get your swords. We need to understand that what's about to happen here is another version of Saul's massacre of the priests of Nob. That's what's about to happen. Because David and his men are going to slaughter Nabal and all of his servants. It's a foolish response to a foolish man. Proverbs 26 verse 4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him. Answer not a fool in his folly, lest you become like him. David needed to read that proverb. Because that's describing him in this moment. Look at verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. 
yet the men were very good to us. And we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by day and by night. All the time we were with them tending sheep. Now therefore know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Now, Abigail, as we will soon see, gets a lot of press in this story, as she should be. She's a remarkable woman. But to me, the real hero in this story is this unnamed servant. Because had he not spoken up, David and his men would have walked into Nabal's household unannounced and taken care of business. But did you notice, when he spoke to Abigail, he affirmed David's integrity and that of his men. He identifies them as the very reason for having such a successful season out in the wilderness. Remember, there's no fences. But this servant says that David was like a wall, protecting them both day and night. Nabal's shepherds lost no sheep as long as David's men were protecting them. But not only does he identify David's integrity, and affirm that that is true, he also acknowledges Nabal's foolishness. He basically tells Nabal's wife that he's a worthless man. Nobody can talk to him. You'll notice Abigail doesn't argue with him. (laughs) She knows that the servant is right. And so that's why she takes quick action. Because she realizes that his foolishness is about to cost them their lives. And so she needs to spring to action in a hurry. So let's look at what she does in verse 18. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine, five sheep already prepared, five measures of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. She said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband of all. It came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down from the hidden part of the mountain that behold David and his men were coming down toward her so she met them now David had said surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him and he has returned me evil for good may God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belonged to him. David and Abigail are on a collision course with opposite intents. <laughs> David is on a path to war. Abigail is on a mission of peace. Abigail knows what a fool her husband can be. I just wonder personally how many times she's had to do something like this to rescue him from his idiocy. This is probably not the first time. This is a remarkable woman. She is faithful to a man who is not very loving towards her. She protects him when he put all their lives into harm's way. But here's the question. Will a home-cooked meal really satisfy the wrath in David's heart? I mean, that's what he's intent upon, right? Well, let's look and see. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey. 
fell on her face before David, bowed herself to the ground. And she fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal, her husband. For as his name is, so is he. His name means fool. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I am your maidservant. Did not, and I did not see the young men that my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek evil against you, my Lord, be as Nabal. And now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. Because my Lord is fighting the battle of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you all your days. And should anyone rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. For the lives of your enemies he will cast, he will sling out from the hollow of a sling. And it shall Come about what the Lord shall do for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and shall appoint you ruler over Israel. That this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord shall deal with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Now, I wanted to read that entire passage because this is the longest monologue spoken by a woman in the entire Old Testament. And it's remarkable what she communicates in these words. And so let me kind of simplify it into these three key components. Abigail intercedes for her husband. She affirms God's promises. And she protects David's integrity. That's essentially what this speech was about first she intercedes for her husband by taking the blame on herself she basically says this is my fault this is my fault for not keeping a closer eye on him i should have known better he's a fool and i wasn't watching you notice she's not asking david to forgive nabal she's asking david to forgive her for not being more mindful. (laughs) Do you see what she's done here in taking that angle? Which would be easier to forgive? A nasty, ruthless, inconsiderate man or a lovely, gracious, very kind woman? You see what she's done? She has softened David's heart. She is risking her life to intercede for an undeserving husband. But notice how Abigail also affirms the promises of God in David's life. The text doesn't say this, but in my mind, I think she was praying the entire trip before she met David. Because some of the things that she says had to have come 
from the Spirit of God as she was looking to the Lord for his guidance. Look at verse 28 again. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant. She's taking the blame. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord, speaking of David, an enduring house. Because my Lord is fighting the battle of the Lord. Remember what David said when he fought Goliath? The battle belongs to the Lord. Listen, it goes on. And evil shall not be found in you all your days. And should anyone rise up to pursue you and seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. But, but the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And it shall come about when the Lord shall do for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and shall appoint you ruler over Israel. These are some powerfully prophetic words that Abigail is speaking to David. Like a newborn protected in the arms of a father. She talks about enemies being cast out as from a sling. That ought to sound familiar. She speaks of David's anointing and that he would be king over all of Israel, that he would have a a house that would endure forever. That's prophetic language. One right after the other, Abigail is confirming the promises of God. And in doing so, she is warning David not to forfeit future blessings by carrying out sinful actions. Abigail is protecting David's integrity. She's telling him, don't ruin a clear conscience by a moment of self-gratification. It's just not worth it, David. Do not answer a fool in his folly, lest you become like him. See, Abigail is a divine stop sign in David's life. She's a way of escape that provides David an opportunity to do the right thing. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that no temptation has come upon you but what is common to man. And God is faithful and just not to allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But in everything, always provide a way of escape so that you might endure. You see, this is a test in David's life. But in a sense, he's been given the answer sheet. God has provided him a way of escape. You see, God does not want David to fail. He does want his faith to grow. So he puts things in his path to help lead him in the right direction. You see, even David recognizes that Abigail has been sent by the hand of God. Look at how it continues in verse 32. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your discernment. And blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed, from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me. Surely there would not be, have been left to Nabal until the morning light as much as one single male. These verses could not be more clear 
In verse 32, David says, God sent you to meet me. He even admits, God sent you to save me from myself. At the end of verse 33, he says, from avenging myself by my own hand. God used Abigail to keep David from becoming another Saul. Because what David was about to do is what Saul has always done. And let's give David some credit here. Because he's very teachable in a moment of passion. I don't know about you, but when I'm upset, I don't want to listen to any long speech, right? I don't care how pretty she is. When I'm being unreasonable, I don't care what you have to say, right? In fact, if you have something that's truthful, I'm usually offended by it. I'm offended by truth when I'm being unreasonable. But to David's credit, he's teachable. He's willing to admit, I was wrong. And God sent you to keep me from myself. He's quick to see God's hand of protection. I want you to know that in three, in two verses, three times, he says, the Lord has restrained me. The Lord has restrained me. The Lord has restrained me. He sees Abigail as God's provision from keeping him from sinning. Look at how it continues in verse 35. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, Go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. Then Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. Isn't that interesting? He rejected a king to have a feast like a king for himself. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light. But it came about in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal that his wife had told him these things and his heart died within him. So that he became as a stone. About ten days later it happened that the Lord struck Nabal and he, he died. Foolish Nabal is wasting all of his profits on a lavish banquet. He spends it all on himself instead of sharing with those who help make those profits for him. Like all fools, he indulges beyond reason and ends up very drink, drunk. Abigail is very wise not to speak to him in that moment because he's not in his right mind. See, a foolish man without inhibition is a very dangerous thing. So she waits in the morning to, till the morning to talk to him about what took place. And it says that when she did tell him how close he had come to death, in that moment, according to verse 37, his heart failed. And his body became like stone. I believe in, in that moment, Nabal had a massive stroke. Because in 10 days, he's died. But I want you to notice, the stroke is not what killed Nabal. <laughs> the text says, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. David didn't need to take vengeance. Because vengeance belongs to the Lord. The Lord will vindicate his people and he does not need our help. Look at verse 39. 
when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from evil. The Lord has also returned the evil doing of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent a proposal to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her, saying, David has sent us to you to take you as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your maidservant is a maid to wash your feet of my Lord's servants. Then Abigail quickly arose and rode on a donkey with her five maidens who attended her, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David had also taken Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they both became his wives. Now Saul had given Michael to his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galilee. Now, let me just say here, I'm not going to make excuses for David's multiple wives. It was a common practice in that culture, and it was sinful for him to comply plain and simple. But we learn some things in these few verses about what has taken place. Michael, David's first wife, was taken by Saul and given to another man. And somewhere in the meantime, David has taken a wife by the name of Ahinoam, who was a woman from the tribe of Judah. Now there's Abigail, who's now a widow, who's also from the tribe of Judah. Also a woman who apparently has no children because none of them are ever mentioned. And so David may have justified his actions as being a kinsman redeemer. But that would have been an excuse. Because clearly it's outside the boundaries of God's design for the marriage relationship. You'll notice there's no indication in these verses that David ever requested of the Lord what he should do. He acted impulsively. So David has done well, but he clearly still has a, a lot to learn. I think as far as the test is concerned, that encounter in the desert, David passed that test. But he passed it because the Lord didn't want him to fail at all anyway. He gave him the answer sheet, provided a way of escape. And I believe what's true for David is true for you and I as well. God does not want you to fail. He wants your faith to grow. And so... There are things that I think we can take away from this passage to, to see how God works in our lives just as he worked in the life of David. Let me give you three things that I want you to consider. The first is this. Number one, don't blow past the stop signs. Don't blow past the stop signs. Abigail was a divinely ordained stop sign in David's life. She was an obstacle in his pathway towards sin. Had David not stopped to listen, he would have regretted it for a lifetime. Kind of like we talked about last week. Always being humble to consider the steps that you take. Praying and being patient before the Lord. Each step asking Him, Lord, would you please confirm or redirect? Another step, Lord, would you please confirm or redirect? And here's why, Lord, because I'm learning to trust you more than I trust myself. So, Lord, would you please confirm or redirect? That's the path towards wisdom and keeps you 
from being a fool. Remember, God doesn't want to see you fail. He wants your faith to grow. Even in the midst of temptation, he will always provide a way of escape. In every situation, without exception, there will be a stop sign along the way. It's a promise. You just got to make sure you're humble enough not to blow right past it as you're on the way to doing what you want to do. Look for stop signs. See, those obstacles that we often encounter may actually be a way in which God is leading us in a different direction to protect us from ourselves. That's what we see in the life of David. So don't complain about the stop sign. Consider it as maybe a chance to reconsider what you're doing and ensuring that you're on a path that God would intend you to be on. Don't blow past the stop signs. But also, don't overlook the promises. God is a lot like Abigail in that he wants to protect your integrity. Why? Because his reputation is built into your character. How you present yourself to the world around you says something about him. So he has a vested interest in how you live your life. He wants to remind you of his promises. Psalm 119, Jason actually mentioned in his prayer this morning, God's word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I've shared with you the story of when Michael Park and a group of guys and I decided to go backpacking. We just got off really late. We didn't get to the trailhead till after dark. And when we arrived, we were thinking, well, we'll just stay there at the trailhead, but we learned that you can't do that. So we had to get on the trail in the dark going to someplace we had never been before. So we strapped on our headlights and went down the trail and just took one step at a time using our headlight to both look ahead to see the the path in front of us, where it was going, but also looking down to make sure that we didn't step on something that would cause us to fall because as we later learned in the daylight, we were precariously on the edge of a cliff. We didn't know that at the time. God's word is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. And so to try and navigate life without God's word is like turning off your headlight in a very dark and dangerous world. I realize we have some really talented and gifted people in this congregation. But I want you to know something. You're not that good. You're not. None of us are. It says in scripture that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Guess who that is? Us. We are lost without him. He also went on to say that he is the light of the world. So that means in order for us to navigate life in a way that honors him, he's got to light our path. He's got to be the lamp unto our feet. He's got to be the one who provides the way of escape so that we can endure the difficulties that we'll all face in our lifetime. But you're not good enough to make it on your own. Finally, never, ever, ever stop being teachable. Never, ever, ever stop being teachable. David wasn't perfect, but he was very teachable. No matter how passionate he was, even in that moment when he met Abigail, 
I can't imagine stopping with being unreasonable and listening to truth and then admitting, wait a second, I'm doing something that's not right by taking matters into my own hands. God sent you to protect me from myself. That's remarkable. David was teachable. He wasn't perfect, but he was teachable. And he was also repentant when he was wrong. He said very quickly, this was wrong. You kept me from sin because those actions were sinful. I've often told you that on Sunday morning I have the best view because I get to look out and see all of your faces. And I'm grateful for the privilege of being a, a part of this church family. And on any given Sunday, do you know who it is that listens most intently? Do you know who it is that most frequently comes to me and says, hey, I learned something new. I wanted to share that with you. Do you know who it is? It is those who are 65 and older. Consistently, without question. Those who have learned the most are the ones that believe they still have the most to learn. They are lifetime learners. Consistently teachable. But what is true for them should be true for all of us. Because we're not that good. We need to grow in our understanding. We need to listen to wise counsel. We need to be faithful to be a part of community. Because it is not good for man. It is not good for woman to be alone. We are built for community. So let me make it really, really simple for you, right? Three words. Stop, look, and listen. That's it. Stop, look, and listen. Stop when you see a divinely ordained stop sign in your life, an obstacle of some sort, and consider, just consider in that moment, that it might be God's way of providing a way of escape, an opportunity to redirect your steps to more faithfully follow Him. And then look. Look for God's promises. Consider the ways in which He wants to guide your stamp as a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Do not navigate life apart from Him. He's the vine. We are the branches. And apart from Him, we can do nothing. Stop, look, and listen. Listen to wise counsel. Be teachable. Be humble. Always willing to learn and grow. God does not want you to fail. He wants your faith to grow. And He's going to put things in your life very purposefully to help you learn what it means to trust in Him. So look for them. They're there. That's a promise. Stop, look, and listen. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful that you do not leave us to ourselves. Because were that the case, we would be ruled by our slavery to sin. But because of your great love with which you loved us, you made us alive together with Christ. He's the light of our life. He is the lamp unto our feet. And so, Father, we need to be convinced in our heart even this morning, that we would be teachable, that we would learn to listen and be humble, that we would repent when wrong because you don't want to see us fail. You want our faith to grow. And so help us look intently and intentionally 
at the ways in which you are at work in our lives through people, through obstacles, through anything that you might use to get our attention. Not to to scold us, but to guide us. To love us and to lead us into a path that helps us understand what we were created for. To be loved by you and to walk in relationship with you. May we be faithful to live that out. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.